0: Welcome to Cliffs and Fences, the intersection of public health, policy, and healthcare. My name is Jared Ormsby and join me as I sit down with medical professionals across the globe to discuss topics ranging from your personal health to reinventing how healthcare is delivered. Each episode is designed with the goal to make understanding health an easy to digest process. If you like what you hear, consider subscribing to our channel and sharing it with those you know. If you have questions or want us to cover a specific topic, feel free to email the show at cliffsandfencespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. The following recording was previously recorded and released under our old title. This episode was originally recorded on September 27th, 2021. All right, I'm joined now by Dr. Jeffrey Klausner. Um, Today, he's going to talk to us a little bit about natural immunity, some work that he's doing in that area. Uh, And so without further ado, I'll allow him to uh, introduce himself. Dr. Klausner, how are you doing today?
1: All right, good. Very happy to be here with you.
0: Great. Um, So I reached out to you uh, a few weeks back to talk about uh, some work that you're doing in the natural immunity. You wrote an op-ed. Uh, in MedPage titled, Quit Ignoring Natural COVID Immunity. Um, before we dive into your research and, and your op-ed, um, talk to us about natural immunity for the, the, you know, going to work nine to five person who doesn't really have time to dig in too deep to this stuff. What is natural immunity?
1: Right. So natural immunity uh, typically... Refers to the immunity that um, an individual acquires after they recover from infection. So when I went to medical school in the 1980s, uh, they taught us that you know if you got measles, if you got uh, chickenpox, if you got you know polio, if you got different infectious diseases, and you recovered, you were immune, you were protected from repeat infection, and really that's the basis of. Infectious disease immunology and the original discovery of, you know, vaccination and vaccines back in the 1800s is that when people were, you know, naturally infected and they recovered, then they were immune from repeat infection, and that's what you know, um, you know, Jenner uh, tried to do originally with a smallpox vaccine by taking, you know, an infection at the time of smallpox and then he, you know, inoculated that smallpox to a young uh, boy, and then a month later, he tried to infect that boy, but because that boy had recovered from, small, from the cowpox, he was protected against smallpox, and that's really right. kind of a foundational aspect of immunity. Now, the tricky thing is that um, in some infections, which you don't necessarily fully recover from, things like HIV infection or AIDS, things like hepatitis C infection, uh, things like herpes or genital herpes, right? So you never fully recover from those. So you do not develop lifelong immunity, but infections that you do recover from, the the teaching has always been that you will have uh, long-term immunity.
0: Great, so that's, that's actually a perfect segue, right? There are some, some diseases that, like you said, you don't get that natural immunity from. What, what were your finding? So you're, you did some research, uh, into natural immunity and what did, what did you find? What's, what's the difference between the, the, uh, immunity offered by the vaccine versus someone that doesn't get vaccinated, but has been, you know, completely recovered from COVID.
1: Right. So very early on in the, uh, epidemic in, you know, like March, April 2020, there was an interesting study of, um people on a fishing vessel. And there was an outbreak of uh, you know SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 on this fishing vessel. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, they had blood tests on people uh, before they went on the, uh, on the fishing vessel. And then they looked at the uh, people who got infected on the fishing vessel. And then they looked at people who did not get infected. And they found that the people who did not get infected already had antibodies to SARS-CoV2 so they had been previously infected probably several weeks or a month or two later and you know that made me think okay well SARS-CoV2 is probably acting like every other you know viral infection that you recover from mm-hmm. probably is uh, protective immunity and it's that same immunity that gets conferred by recovery from a natural infection that we try to mimic with vaccination. So right now with the current vaccines that are available in the United States, what they do is they present the body a piece of this spike protein. So people, you know, have seen pictures of the coronavirus, right? It's this kind of globular looking thing with all these spikes sticking out of it. So that's the spike protein. So they came up with different ways for that spike protein to be manufactured in your body. One is through the mRNA vaccine. So they, you know, um, give your body mRNA. That mRNA goes into cells in your body. And then the cells in the body start becoming factories for these spike proteins. These spike proteins get released into the, um, in, in, into the bloodstream. And your body thinks it's seeing the whole, you know, infection, the whole virus, the whole SARS-CoV-2. So it starts making antibodies and immune Um, reactions against this uh, protein, which is why you get sick, you know, a couple days after Mm -hmm. you get vaccinated, you might get a little fever, you might feel really tired. So that's normal. That's your body's immune system reacting against this. And then um, a a few weeks later, you'll have antibodies. Now, antibodies are only one arm of the immune system. You have antibodies and you have cells. So the immune system, if you think about is like the you know, military, you have, you know, different branches of the, uh, of the military, and you have different branches of the immune system. So you have antibodies, which are one branch produced by B cells, you have um, T cells, which is another branch. And like in the military, the branches have different divisions. So you have the T cell branch, and then they have the um, CD4 Uh, division. They have the CD8 division. You also have other specialist cells with cool names like natural killer cells and uh, macrophages, and then uh, B memory cells. And all these cells are critical importance to the uh, successful production of immunity. So after vaccination, all those cells get trained on how to recognize uh, infection, and then they get you know, put in place and they're in the lymph nodes and other in the bone marrow and other parts of the body that if they see infection again, they're all trained and ready to divide and respond uh, very quickly. With natural infection, very similar, all your different, you know, divisions um, of your immune system get trained to recognize infection. But with natural infection, your body is seeing the entire virus. So not just the spike protein, but the N protein and other uh, proteins. So actually, there's actually more training. There actually are more cells and more antibodies that are created to uh, a variety of different parts of the uh, virus, which is why some people believe that um, your immune system is actually stronger or better and can more effectively deal with variants and other changes if you've uh, recovered from infection. One of the key differences is that with vaccines, you can get very high antibody titers very quickly. And, um, you know, the height of the antibody titer is related to the duration. So the higher amount you get, Mm -hmm. then you'll have it for a lot longer. Um, But still with natural immunity, we, we see very long and durable and effective protection.
0: And so putting this into numbers, you know, we've heard that the Pfizer Moderna vaccines both have a, you know, ninety something um, efficacy against severe illness and death. What would that number? So, uh, if someone were to be naturally infected, what would that look like in an efficacy measurement? I guess.
1: Yeah. So we, you know, we, we that's exactly the question that we sought to answer by doing what's called this systematic review. So a systematic review is essentially a a type of research method undertaken by epidemiologists. Mm -hmm. And I am an infectious disease epidemiologist. I uh, was an EIS officer, an epidemic intelligence service officer for the CDC in 1995. And that's like your first line of defense. Those are your first investigators who go out if there are outbreaks, if there are public health emergencies. So I did that for two years. And then I was actually an EIS supervisor uh, for the next uh, 10 years. And then I went to work for CDC again uh, in South Africa where I led um, a big part of the US government's assistance to South Africa with standing up their AIDS and uh, TB programs. After that, I came back and I was a professor at UCLA in epidemiology and infectious diseases. And now since February, uh, it's um, end of September now, I am at USC where I'm both a professor of medicine and a professor of population and public health sciences. But so as a researcher, a systematic review is one of our key research tools and a research method. So what we do in a systematic review is we you know define first you know what do we want to review what's the study question? So the study question we wanted to know is what is the actual protective effect of, of natural immunity So to do that, we went. We go into the computer and we go to all the published studies um, that are indexed by uh, PubMed. So the U.S. government mm-hmm. has a service where they index everything that's been uh, published in in English, at least right. um, uh, since early one thousand, nine hundred and sixty. And then also we looked at the major preprint servers. So right now, particularly because of COVID, it's so urgent to get new information out as quickly as possible. Um, Yale University and other universities have set up websites, basically where uh, researchers can put up any new report or any new data. Okay. Now, there's a big caveat to that, right? It doesn't go through a standard peer review process, so a lot of things may not be accurate. A lot of things, you know, may require more uh, repeat uh, research. However, that's the best we can currently do. So we looked at both of those, you know, big libraries of information of studies on the PubMed already published, and then on the Med, uh, X, um, RX preprint server. And we found about 1300 uh, studies, which actually looked at the protective effect of infection uh, uh, against infection after recovery. And then, uh, uh, a lot of the studies, it was unclear exactly what they were measuring, what the definitions of initial infection were, what the outcomes were, and we sure. wanted to be very strict. Mm-hmm. We want to be very specific. So we only s- selected studies where people had a PCR confirm- confirmatory positive test initially to show that they had true infection. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't based on their going to the hospital. It wasn't right. based their symptoms. It was a microbiologically positive test. And then similarly, they had to have a microbiologically uh, confirmed second test at least 90 days after that first test to meet the definition of repeat infection. So through that process, we found 10 studies. Those 10 studies came from um, 60, uh, came from six, not 60, came from six different countries and uh, had uh, over 9 million individuals that were um, counted across these 10 different studies. So a very large sample, a very large number of people were looked at who had a positive infection uh, at the beginning and then looked over time and carefully tracked to see if they developed a positive infection sometime at least 90 days later. And uh, what we found was that the um, um, you know, risk of uh, repeat infection, what was actually very, very low. So uh, the uh, prior infection conferred a 90% protection, 90% protection versus those without prior infection um, to a a new infection. So 90% is actually better than the current uh, vaccines against the Delta variant. The current efficacy of the vaccines against Delta variant infection are anywhere from about 50 to 60%. They still work very well against severe illness and hospitalization being in the ICU or death there's still as you said 90% or greater but we were just looking at infection. Okay. So prior infection very very effective at protecting against a new repeat infection. Not 100% because you know there's always some um, you know, caveats, you know, people who might be immune suppressed, their own immune system is suppressed maybe by a certain type of disease like cancer, it might be immune suppressed, because of medications they're taking like steroids, or certain biologics that people may take for conditions like psoriasis or arthritis. Mm-hmm. Or as people get older, we know that you know, people 70 75 80 85 years or older, their immune system is also suppressed just naturally, because of age. So it's not uh, unexpected that, you know, the uh, protection from recovery to a repeat infection was not, you know, um, 100%, but mm-hmm. 90 90% is actually very, very good.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's definitely a high number. Um, and it would seem and, and we'll get into this just a little bit. It, it, it seems as though it, it, that might be a lower number just because of the amount of coverage that natural immunity isn't getting um, and so I think to the the sort of layman it, it, it's almost as though natural immunity doesn't exist and and that's uh, another thing I wanted to bring up with you why do you think it is you know I, I know I know the World Health Organization has recognized natural immunity uh, I have a quote here from them. Uh, saying, quote, uh, current evidence points to most individuals developing strong protective immune responses following natural infection with SARS-CoV-2, just like you mentioned. Um, However, we haven't heard a lot from the CDC, or at least as much as I would think after hearing uh, what you just said. Why do you think there is a hesitancy or do you think there's a hesitancy there? Uh, And if so, why is that hesitancy there to, to talk about it?
1: Right. So as you said, the WHO... You know, it does define and recognize that, you know, immunity after infection uh, exists, you know, uh, they're, they're cautious, they say, you know, as far as we know, exists at least eight months as we only have, you know, right. when they published that in May, there are only eight months of observational data. Now it's four months, we can confidently say, you know, it exists for at least 12 months. Um, but you know, if we just apply what we know about other viruses, or even the first SARS outbreak, you know, which was 17 years ago, um, uh, people still have immunity from the first SARS outbreak, and people ha- actually have immunity. Uh, they've they've done a few studies in people who uh, who are still alive and recovered from the 1918 pandemic. So 103 years later, there's people evidence with immunity. So immunity after recovery. I think can last, you know, a very, very uh, long time. Um, Israel recommend, uh, recognizes immunity after infection, so they include it in their immunity passports, right? So to travel, to go to events, to go to concerts, to go to, you know, work um, in Israel, you either have to be vaccinated, you have to demonstrate that you've recovered from infection. Or you have to have a, you know, a recent negative uh, PCR or antigen test. In the European Union, um, they have something called the certificate, immunity certificate, and they also include, you know, um, immunity due to recovery from prior infection. So in the United States, the question is, okay, so why is there this policy gap? And one reason may be because the United States is very paternalistic. Right, so you know, we think that you know people may not be able to handle the nuances of this information. We knew we know that vaccination is very safe in people who've recovered from infection. Um, it's not going to make people you know sicker. There's no increased risk of side effects sure. and. Early on with the rollout of vaccination, right? There was no differentiation. There was no communication. Well, if you're covered, you know, please wait your turn or get an antibody test and see if you really uh, need it or not. I mean, th- there was no effort for that whatsoever. So The United States took a very paternalistic. And simplistic approach, and just said, "Boom! Everyone has to be vaccinated." And now, you know, with the vaccine mandates, you know, everyone who works for different cities or states or municipal employees or in the military or in corrections, you know, or in entering schools or universities, everyone has to be vaccinated. You know, um, it seems like our, you know, our public health authorities, you know, just don't trust that you know people can deal with a little bit of nuance or a little bit of, you know, complexity in that information. So so that's kind of one reason. The second reason I think um, is part of that, actually, that people may, you know, misinterpret that and say, oh, well, you know, why should I get this vaccine? I should just go out and get infected. Right. And, you know, I think Uh, People do recognize that the infection is serious. People do recognize that the infection is, you know, causing people to go to the hospital. People do recognize there's been, you know, over 670,000 deaths from COVID-19. So, you know, I don't think that the American people are that stupid. Um, That they're going to go out and purposely try to get infected but that's what some of our leaders think you know uh, might happen so again that's part of the paternalism is saying okay well people may not know better people may not understand this you know nuance with the communication, we want to make sure that you know we're just sending one clear message that everyone must get vaccinated. Um, You know, the, 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 the third issue is that, you know, we've somewhat fallen into a trap and said, okay, well, everything we've known about medicine, about immunology, about virology, we have to throw out the window, because this is a brand new virus, and, you know, we just don't know, so we have to, you know, apply what we call the precautionary principle, Mm -hmm. which means, you know, better safe than sorry better, you know, tell everyone to stay home and shelter under their couch better to, you know, tell everyone to wipe everything down and to, you know, you know, clean and hygiene and do all these things that really don't make a lot of sense if we, you know, accept science for what it is, but just Saying, well, you know, we don't know, so we have to be, you know, extremely careful. We don't know that immunity in people who recover is going to be the same as immunity in people who recover from every other infection since the beginning of mankind. Um, so I think those things go I- into the calculus about, you know, why in the United States we've been so reluctant to acknowledge the protective effect of recovery after infection.
0: I want to piggyback off of what you said uh, uh, earlier in that statement uh, about mask mandates. I mean, uh, mask mandates. Excuse me. Uh, vaccine mandates. So, you know, we're seeing those pop up, especially here in California, where you and I both are. You know, uh, LA County uh, is 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 pushing towards even having kids um, with uh, uh, vaccine, uh, creating vaccine mandates for kids. Uh, I know here, close to San Francisco, and even parts in the East Bay where I'm at, uh, we're starting to see um, these these mandates. There are, I mean, on surface level, I would say there are obviously some benefits, right? You, you get closer to herd immunity, right? Um, you know, I, I hear a lot of people say, you know, you don't have the right to infect other people and so on. So at surface level, I would say for the common person, it's, you know, okay, I don't disagree fully with, with vaccine mandates. But what are the potential downsides of these vaccine mandates? What are the harms that, that, that it poses?
1: Well, I mean, I'm a big supporter of vaccine mandates and I think, you know, we should have initiated vaccine mandates in January and, you know, we could have saved a lot more lives. Sure. Um, instead of hemming and hawing, you know, and, you know, I, I was a public health official, you know, in the city county, San Francisco, I was a, you know, health official in South Africa and, you know, public health does have different ethics than medicine. So a physician taking your patient, they're obligated to do no harm and to do the best for the patient in front of them. Public health, the obligation is what we call beneficence, is to do good. Right. So, you, And you want to do good for the most number of people. And that may mean that, you know, a few people, um, you know, may have, you know, side effects or, you know, adverse uh, consequences from your intervention. It also could mean that, you know, people could suffer, suffer you know, um, You know, decrements to their civil liberties right so you know anything that you do uh, often in you know public health, whether it be you know put up speed limits on driving okay you're interfering with my civil liberties to drive as fast as I want, you know, not allowing driving under the influence having you know Uh, vaccine requirements for seventh grade or for kindergarten school entry, right? So all those interfere with individual civil liberties, but they're for the benefit of the larger community. So, um, you know, the downside to vaccine mandates are are the stress and the tension and the anxiety and, you know, the, you know, anger that it's, generated in, you know, a few people, but those few people are, are very loud. Um, There's also some downsides to the administrative, you know, costs that businesses, you know, have to incur by collecting the information, by collating the information, by, you know, monitoring the um, information. I mean, it would be great if we just, you know, had the vaccine out there like we did and just everyone, you know, ran to get vaccinated. But, you know, that that worked for about 50% of people, but still there were 50% of people that, you know, did not get vaccinated. And the, you know, data now are very clear, you know, 70% of the people in the hospital and people are dying are unvaccinated. Mm -hmm. So lack of vaccination directly related to hospitalization and death those hospitalizations and deaths uh, have costs not only for that individual, but for society, right? So a lot of those people are not fully insured. Uh, Those, you know, hospital beds take up, you know, space for, you know, other people who may need to be in the hospital or may need to get procedures, right? Hospitals are overwhelmed. They can't provide the, you know, standard uh, quality care that they should be providing. So there are costs you know, to the, the, the lack of vaccination that, that's high enough. So I think, you know, early on also, we, we thought that there was, you know, benefits to, you know, reaching herd immunity that this would really, you know, eliminate the spread of infection, um, you know, with the current vaccine efficacy, about 50% on, on um, reducing risk for infection. And the fact that people can still spread infection, although not as well as someone who's been unvaccinated, because your duration of spread is shorter, you know, our, our goal of reaching herd immunity through vaccination, it you know be, be becomes more difficult. Um, you know, other downsides are that yeah, I mean, there may be some rare side effects. So, you know, early on we heard about you know with certain vaccines, you know, blood clots and people were concerned about that. We also heard about you know inflammation of the heart or the tissue around the heart, myocarditis. I mean, those are very rare, uh, but they're not zero. So, you know, there's 80 million people or so in the United States who are unvaccinated. You know, once we get those, if we get those 80 million additional people vaccinated, you know, there may be anywhere from, you know, 10 to hundred additional, you know, serious adverse events. But, you know, on the flip side, among those, you know, 80 million, you may have, you know, um, you know, 2 million die. So it's 2 million deaths versus, you know, 100,000, you know, adverse events. Um, So that's kind of the part of the public health uh, calculus uh, to, you know, some issues about, you know, what the benefits, the mandates are, reduce, reduce death, reduce hospitalization, keep people working, keep schools open, keep our fire departments and police agencies staffed, you know, versus the, you know, downsides, uh, which may be, you know, a small increase in these adverse events and the additional, you know, bureaucratic and administrative costs.
0: Sure. I want to quickly just follow up with that. Because earlier on, you mentioned something about uh, certain countries implementing uh, sort of like immunity cards. Could that be something to maybe please both sides, right? Because there's obviously, as you mentioned, there's a loud voice for opposition of mask mandates. And then there's, you know, the voices of of people that are for them. Um, could immunity cards or immunity mandates sort of be a a, a feasible um, meet in the middle uh, sort of uh, solution?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, focusing on immunity, uh, you know, and how you get to immunity through these different... So it'd be vaccination or recovery from infection is really where we need to be, and I, I see that as the middle of the road. And in my career, I've tried as best I can to stay in the middle of the road. Right? If you go one, if you go to one side or the other, you're bound to hit the guardrail or bound to fall off the road. So it's much safer to be a a leader in the middle of the road. You're also going to get a lot more done. You can get to where you want to go. A lot faster, so I think uh, th- there's good rationale now and good evidence to recognize immunity due to recovery from infection and include that, you know, either as a bona fide medical exemption, right? So all these vaccine requirements allow for a medical exemption. Right now, in general, the only allowable medical exemption is is someone has a severe allergy to any components within the vaccine product. But I would argue that another bona fide medical exemption that you know, should be conferred by a, you know, a clinician or a licensed you know, practitioner is if someone has recovered from infection. Mm-hmm. So it shouldn't be dependent on someone's self report who says, oh, yeah, last year oh, I had yeah. a you know, bad cold and fever. It should be based on you know, microbiological evidence of prior infection, which could be a, pro- a prior positive antibody test. Could be a prior positive PCR test. It could be even a prior positive antigen test that was done in the clinic. I wouldn't necessarily trust the home test, not necessarily because the home tests don't work, because you know, people may, you know, fabricate a home test result for the purpose of you know avoiding the vaccination requirement. So I think if you have legitimate certified evidence of prior infection, that should be a bona fide. Medical uh, exemption would you know completely dampen a lot of the tension right now over the uh, vaccine mandates. And you know, I think everyone would agree, you know, if you've if you've never been infected and have no evidence of prior infection, if you've never been vaccinated, I mean you are at very high risk for you know getting infected, getting sick, and if you have risk factors, you know, such as Age over sixty, or obesity, or something else, going to the hospital, and you're also at risk for spreading the infection to other people. Of course. Um, so, you know, that's a, a population that really, you know, must get vaccinated.
0: Sure. And so, you know, just to just to kind of wrap it up for viewers, what would be your recommendation to someone that's um, kind of in the middle of all this confusion of natural immunity and, um, you know, vaccination immunity? Uh, if someone was uh, reinfected, what should they do? Or if someone was uh, naturally infected, I should say, what should they do? Uh, should they go seek uh, both doses? Should they just stay, you know, kind of as is, is naturally immune, maybe one dose? What would be your recommendation to those people?
1: Right. So, I mean, on an individual basis, I recommend that people who have, who, who have recovered, you know, still get vaccinated. Right. I mean, the, the vaccination after recovery is still safe. I mean, it's been demonstrated to further boost the number of antibodies, you know, whether your protection is truly different than anyone who recovered and did get vaccinated is really not known. You know, that boost in antibodies, how quickly that will, you know, decline again in six or 12 months, you know, you'll probably be back at baseline, but you will uh, enjoy that boost. And again, it's safe and it'll just make your life easier you know to like comply with the requirement to go to work to go to the movies and to you know be part of society that you know embraces uh vaccination if someone you know on the other hand is like either you know severely afraid of just getting vaccinated or you know for whatever reason just is absolutely adamant against getting uh vaccinated and they have recovered from infection You know, I think, you know, that uh, individual needs to have a discussion with their physician. You know, can this be a bona fide medical exemption? I think, you know, as our data and our findings, uh, you know, as the publication of these findings become more uh, well read and more well known, um, doctors will start to accept prior infection as a bona fide uh, medical exemption. Exemption, and then that would be a pathway for you know those individuals to be medically exempt. Ultimately, you know, we'd like to see you know the governmental bodies that are quote issuing and making these policies and regulations around you know vaccine requirements to include you know equal standing for um, immunity due to recovery from prior infection.
0: Great. Well, I I on behalf of my viewers, I really really appreciate and thank you for you know, lending us your expertise on this topic. I've learned a lot today, uh, and I thank you for the work you do. This is a very, uh, very confusing time for a lot of people. We're trying to make sense of these uh, sensational headlines that we see, uh, and, and what you've shared today, I think will clarify a lot of uh, points for, for, for many people. So thank you, and uh, it was a blast having you on today. All right, Jared, thank you, and best of luck. All right, have a great one, bye. Bye-bye.